Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week a politics special as Jason Cowley talks to Stephen Bush and George Eaton about the Labour leadership's final days and his interview with George Osborne. Then I talk to John Elledge and Caroline Crampton about the Queen becoming our longest-serving monarch and a lot of nerdy stuff about European royalty too. Plus, Kate Mossman talks to our film critic Ryan Gilby. I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman, and welcome to this week's podcast. On the eve of the announcement of the new Labour leader, I've got with me Stephen Bush, editor of The Staggers, and George Eaton, political editor. Stephen, you've had a terrific campaign as a pundit and commentator, and indeed you've broken many stories. Indeed, I think you were the first person to report that Jeremy Corbyn was ahead in the contest, having looked at some leaked private polling. Where do you stand now? Is he going to win? Yeah, yeah, I think most people voted a long time ago. Yes, uh, Corbyn has had a worse end of the campaign than he would have liked. He's uh, he's finally come under sort of sustained either scrutiny, if you're one perspective, or sustained attack from uh, from you know, the media, from his opponents. But that is partly a testament to the fact that he's going to win. The reason why the Tories and their allies have uh, cranked up their attacks on him in the last week or so is they think he's going to be the candidate and they want to define him uh, as a threat to Britain, a threat to prosperity, blah, 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 de blah. Um, when you say a threat to Britain, you mean not only if he ever got control of the economy, he'd make a mess of it in their view, but also because of his um, rather bold position of foreign policy, anti-NATO and so on and so forth. Is that what you mean? Yeah, they want to be able to... Because uh, one of the things they did very cleverly that sort of people didn't notice in Westminster, obviously most people who live in London do not live in marginal constituencies. They live in safe Tory seats, or like me, they live in safe Labour seats. Um, the, the thing they did very cleverly is these micro-targeted letters written by members of the Shadow Cabinet, including Michael Fallon writing these letters going, well, under Ed Miliband... Labour and the SNP will endanger the deterrent. They'll endanger, and that those security voters were the ones who defected from the Lib Dems to the Conservatives and gave them their majority. And they want to hammer those voters who they need to keep next time, obviously, with this message of oh he'll take us out of NATO, oh he'll get rid of the nuclear deterrent. Um, yeah, these are people who are you know they're reasonably prosperous. They're worried about their fellow citizen, but they're also worried about security issues, and they want that to be uh, a sort of golden thread of their attacks on Corbyn for the next five years. But for this part of the contest, it's the selectorate. He doesn't really need to appeal to 
the wider electorate. Why do you think he he's done so well, and why has he galvanised so many people, um, particularly so many young people? Well, I think there are sort of three factors. I think one, there's a generation of voters in the Labour leadership who have only really known Labour governments until the last uh, sort of five and a bit years, and so their concept of where the centre is is far to the left of older members of the Labour Party and the general public. They see kind of Tony Blair as sort of the dead centre of political of of politics. The Conservatives as far to the right. Ed Miliband as a fairly weak left wing alternative and. Against that, Corbyn seems quite reasonable. He seems like a proper Labour opposition. Um, and there's a hunger for an anti-austerity option. Those are kind of two reasons. And then the third is just that because the defeat was so bad, there's a feeling in a lot of circles that Labour can't win the 2020 election. So it might as well lose it in some style. Um, and and that is the attraction of the kind of, you know, let's go full full left wing with Corbyn approach to some so people. So it's an attacking open game, um, some bold play and you lose 5-0. Yeah. Um, George, what seems fascinating to me, not only is this unprecedented, he's going to be the most left-wing leader in Labour's long and distinguished history, even more left-wing than Lansbury, the pacifist who was toppled in the 30s. But he doesn't have, as I understand it, support of most of the parliamentary party. So so what does this mean? Are we are we about to see civil war? Yes, you're right. He has the support of just uh, 14 MPs. Um, so most of those who nominated him are not actually going to go on to, to vote for him. Um, so when it, when Corbyn first became the frontrunner, there were lots of stories written suggesting he'll be gone by Christmas, there'll be a coup, uh, it'll be a, there'll be an immediate insurrection. That it's now clear that's not going to be the case. And most MPs are going to bide their time. They recognise that he'll have won a very clear mandate and um, they don't want to get the blame um, as and when it goes wrong. And most of them do expect it to go wrong. Uh, the early tests for him will be Prime Minister's questions, relations with the media, and um, then next May's local elections, some Scottish and Welsh elections. I mean, one MP said to me, Jeremy's talked a big game on Scotland. Um, this is John Mann, actually. Uh, he said, We're going to, uh, I'm going to win back Scotland. Well, I'll, I'll be, it's payment by results. I'll judge him on that. I think most in the PRP take a similar view that having failed to remove Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband when they had the chance, there are quite a lot um, who don't want to make the same mistake again. But Corbyn will be much harder to remove than some people are suggesting. But he, but he can't be blamed if he's not able to turn around Scotland in, in nine to ten months. I mean, it's, no. it's, it's Labour's problems there are deep. But um, I think they will want to see signs that some progress is being made, at least. And the local elections in England, I mean, if Labour have a bad result there, if they lose, some are predicting, Doug, Michael Duggar predicted last night, we'll lose hundreds of councillors. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that is the case, then it becomes much easier for Corbyn's opponents to construct the case. We need to be sceptical of the polls, but at the moment, Labour, Labour are well down, aren't they? What are they, 27, 28 in the polls at the moment? Yes. Do you, do you, could you see those polls um, falling for Labour? It's very hard to predict. I wouldn't. I think most of the public won't have been paying attention to the Labour leadership contest. So what's very interesting is when um, James Morris said Miliband's former pollster wrote a piece recently for us saying, your leaders of the opposition have about 17 days to define themselves, that window when they're first elected. And that's why it's so important um, for Corbyn to, um, to come across well to the public. And that will mean, I think, uh, saying some very different things. Do we know uh, which senior Labour MPs won't sit in his shadow cabinet? Yes. So uh, Chris Leslie, the current shadow chancellor, has said he won't 
uh, Tristram Hunt, the Shadow Education Secretary. Uh, Chukramuna has said he'd be prepared to have a conversation with Jeremy Corbyn, but I think it's very unlikely he'll serve. Yvette Cooper won't serve. Liz Kendall. Liz Kendall. Um, Ivan Lewis. Ivan Lewis. Emma Reynolds. So some you're going to have some pretty big beasts on the back benches in a way uh, you haven't had um, in recent times. And what do you, Steve, what do you expect of Prime Minister's questions where we'll, we'll, we'll see Corbyn if he wins this Wednesday take on David Cameron for the first time? Do you think he'll have um, his MPs cheering him on? Oh, I think that they will be... Well, the thing is, is actually... Although it's very no- yeah, it's it's incredibly noisy. The noise doesn't emanate from that many members of the PLP anyway. I think lots of people will be shouting regardless. I think he'll do very well in PMQs um, because for the same reason he does very well in question time style formats. He'll be quite a difficult opponent for Cameron week on week in the same way that uh, William Hague was quite a difficult opponent for Blair because Cameron will want to trap him going you know. I'm on the centre ground, you're pro, pro-immigration, pro pro-high welfare, pro-high taxes. Well, Jeremy Corbyn wants to be pro all of those things. Uh, so it will be difficult for Cameron to claim any victories doing that. And I think he'll be on the back foot in PMQs, at least for some time. That's interesting. You mentioned um, Cameron's pitch, um, the centre ground, or clay, trying to claim the centre ground. I spent some time with the Chancellor George Osborne last week. We went to the northeast together to visit um, the big Nissan car plant there and the new Hitachi train-making factory. Fascinating visit, and I wrote about him in this week's magazine. George, how convinced are you by Osborne's positioning of the Conservative Party? And and he says not only does he want to claim the centre ground, he wants to reshape it. Mm. Well, it's smart positioning, because one option for the Conservatives under, under Jeremy Corbyn is to veer to the right because uh, they will regard Labour as unelectable and there's some Tory MPs who feel we could say we're going to privatise the NHS. No one would care. Uh, Instead, they're actually emphasising the more centrist aspects of their programme, the living wage, um, action on uh, forcing companies to publish um, uh, stats on on equal pay. And um, that is is a smart manoeuvre. But you you do also see how Osborne has... No, he has this line, you know, in opposition, you, you move to the centre, in, in government, you move the centre. He has done that in issues such as welfare. And um, and it's true that they are privatising parts of uh, and he's the And he's done it on welfare how? What do you mean exactly? Well, measures such as the benefit cap, by defining Labour as, as the welfare party that was happy with unlimited benefits... Um, Going to going to families, and, and and that will be very hard for any government. To so the rest of the Conservative Party now is that they're the party of working people. Yes. So by definition, Labour become caricatured as the party of the workless, yeah. the benefit dependent, the unemployed, so on and so yes. forth. Yeah, the Tories' mission is to marginalise Labour permanently as a party, as you say, for for the unemployed, um, for the low paid, for trade unionists and for, for radicals, for London radicals, metropolitan radicals. Stephen, what, what do you think of um, George Osborne's positioning? Are you, are you convinced by him? Well, I mean, I'm not, but ultimately new statesman writers who live in Stoke Newington are not part of George Osborne's path to number 10. Is that where you live, Stoke Newington? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, so he can, he can do without memory. I think, you know, it's superficially very plausible, um, partly because he clearly... The Northern Powerhouse stuff, yeah, he, he's given power to his political opponents. People respect that. He clearly, um, you know, 
worries about electrification of the railways aside, he clearly has tried to give more power to the north than any sort of leader of any political organization for you know effectively since Joseph Chamberlain. Um, that is very impressive, and it is uh, it is terrifying for Labour that if uh, their leftward turn doesn't. Uh, secure the electoral rewards they think it might. Uh, there then is very little space for them if he if he moves slightly to the left, and that allows a lot of people who feel dubious about Corbyn for a variety of reasons think, oh maybe voting Tory isn't so bad after all. The risk for him though is is he's got to be another Conservative. If you are Theresa May or Boris Johnson, there's now quite a lot of space to the right of Osborne among the Tory electorate. You can easily see how Boris or Theresa or any yeah whoever it is the other the name other than George Osborne in the hat is going oh well we can beat this we can beat but, this but Labour wouldn't party. He, had Labour uh, had the Conservatives not won a majority, I imagine George Osborne's position would have been weaker. Not that I imagine it would have been weaker. And then the party, the Conservative Party, may then have looked to a maverick such as Boris Johnson, who they think could have delivered them the majority that David Cameron wasn't able to do so. But now they have a majority, and Osborne was, in many ways, the architect of that victory as, as Chancellor and Chief Strategist. Now they have that victory. Does it not make it more difficult for Boris Johnson, particularly as Osborne may well be up against Jeremy Corbyn, a, a politician from the far left, who is most unlikely to appeal to marginal constituents? It's, it's difficult, but the, the advantage of, of the Tory system is that unlike 2007 when you needed so many Labour MPs to sign up and not Gordon Brown challenger, and they all had to be the ones to go, oh, yeah, Gordon, I'm going to put a label on my forehead saying never promote me ever. This time, you only need uh, one person to sign your papers if you're a Tory candidate. The voting among MPs is anonymous in the round-by-round round stage, and ultimately they do they send two names to the Tory membership. There's going to be a second name. And then I think it, it is anyone's game. He is very socially liberal. The Tory membership is not. Um, the Tory membership will be triumphalist but, but about But Boris Corbyn. is socially liberal too, isn't it? There's, no, there's not much between him and... Uh, but he can do that kind of... thing that... Um, uh, than they they like so much uh, that sound may have been completely lost. Yeah, was, that a, was that a sort of impression of a bear or something, <laughs> George? Yeah, move, we'll move away from bear impressions and just just take your take finally mm. on George Osborne. Do you, are you one of these people who look at him and think he's a a brilliant strategist, a, a kind of devious mm. politician that plays the game, or do you take him at his word when he says it's actually not about means, it's about ends? Mm. He does, deserve, he does deserve a huge amount of credit for the Conservatives majority, which was an extraordinary result. Um, I don't think any party since the 19th century had increased both its uh, number of seats and vote share after, after five years in government. Um, he defined uh, the economic debate very skillfully. Um, but he had a lot of luck as well. The economy came right for him at, at, exact, at the exact moments uh, he needed it to. He, he was in that sweet spot where... Uh, things were getting, uh, the economy was performing well enough for him to say uh, we're, we're recovering, but it wasn't performing so well that people felt they could gamble on, gamble on Labour. And there are some Conservatives who take the view that his fortunes are tied to the economy. So one said to me recently, if there's another crash, uh, that's Osborne over. He, he, if you look at his poll ratings, they started to improve once the economy turned round. Um, if the economy fails, it's on his watch, he will, he will take the hit, and that, that is Boris's opportunity then. Okay. He was lucky too, wasn't he, in the, um, the fall in the global oil price came at just the right time so that he could say a sort of tenor off 
tenor of the tank, it's exactly. actually with the Tories, uh, quite a resonant line, which I know Robert Halp on the excellent Harlow MP enjoyed very much. Okay, we're going to wrap up now. Before, before we do, I don't like um, forcing journalists to be punters and make predictions, but who's going to win on Saturday, Stephen? Uh, Jeremy Corbyn. George? It'll be uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Watson, the uh, Tom and Jerry show. Tom and Jerry, Tom Watson as, as Labour deputy. Uh, my interview with George Osborne is in this week's magazine, but also online on the New Statesman's website. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks, Stephen Bush and Georgina. reign of any British monarch, although we'll come to discussing whether there are not there are little kingdoms within, and oh, it's all very confusing. But let me talk to you first, John Ellidge and Caroline Crampton, about the glorious reign of Elizabeth II. John, you wrote a post this week. Um, Elizabeth II's got to 63 years and seven months. There was some, I would say, expert-level pedantry in this post, wasn't there? Because it, Not least because we discovered that Macbeth was a real king. I'm a bit disturbed to find out that you didn't already know that Macbeth was a real king, Helen. I think that very much reflects badly on, on the level of your education there. Um, I saw, but I don't... I, I, but is, King Lear isn't a real king, though, King right? Lear is not a real king. Okay, right. Which ones are... The other ones are... Hamlet, was he uh, a real old, prince? Uh, yes. Old King Lud, not a real king. Laertes, he's a real person? <laughs> This is a fun game. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm trying to get that one from The Winter's Tale. No, he's probably not a real king either. Anyway, back to the Even subject Even by the standards of the New Statesman podcast, I'm really impressed with the speed with which we've gone off topic here. Um, yes, so the Queen has been... She, she, she is the biggest Queen. She's the most giantest Queen there has ever been. We, are, we have a giant Queen. Don't fat shame um, the Queen, John. Um, That's treason, technically. The Queen, as you say, has been Queen for uh, 63 years, 7 months. Uh, and as of Wednesday, she's overtaken her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, to become the longest-reigning queen, uh, the longest-reigning monarch, in fact, in That's British history. That's particularly impressive, isn't it? Because Victoria became queen, what, 1837, and she was 18, is that right? She was born in 1819, whereas Queen Elizabeth was 26 when she became queen. But my big discovery of the week was that Thailand's king inherited the throne when he was, what, four months old? Is that the one? That... No, no, um... I'm getting he, he was born in 19, sadly I actually know all the numbers on this now. Um, he was born in 1927, two years after the king, yeah, queen, yeah. and inherited the throne in 1946. So he would have been 19. He wasn't that young. So he's got a bit of an edge on her. Um, and he's 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 still on the throne. So he's the world's longest reigning monarch. Um, so you know he he he's very much the one to outlive. Someone told me last night that um, talking about the death of the king is actually a capital crime in Thailand. So there's one place off my holiday list. Um, but he's not the longest reigning reigning king there has ever been. Okay. Um, the longest reigning historical king, as far as we can tell, is uh, a king of Swaziland who ruled from 1899, when he was four months old, to 1981, and whose name, very helpfully, I have forgotten, but he was the second. There's a really interesting thing with people who were born around the turn of the 19th century, so this is just a personal digression here. When you see that someone's date of birth was 1899 and then they died in 1980, that's, like a, you know, that's a normal length for a life. The average life expectancy is now kind of 70, between 70s and 80s. But what an incredible, like, what your expectations of what life was going to be when you were born versus the kind of, like, scrunchies and VHS boom of the 1980s. That's, I mean, it's kind of incredible. But, um, uh, Caroline, I'm going to drag us back onto topic here. By saying, who's your favourite monarch? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Oh, tough question. Probably Elizabeth the first. Um, what is wrong with John that, is like John? a monarch hipster and he thinks that's too obvious. Like, he, she, you know, it doesn't even have like a difficult no, I, second ring. Overrated. I've gone full circle on this in that I probably, if you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have, you know, made some case for like Richard the Second or something cool. But, uh, but now, no, I, I eminently respect the way that she managed to somehow in a in a world where you weren't really supposed to be in charge of anything as a woman, be in charge of stuff. Also, not marry anybody, not have to, you know, have terrible sex with anyone she didn't want to, and also just wear some amazing wigs. I'm going to make a bid for Charles II, mm. um, who I believe was the kind of YOLO king, in the sense that uh, I, I kind of still can't entirely believe that he was, in fact, the son of Charles I. Given that Charles I was notoriously about five foot four, Henrietta Maria of France, his wife, was also diddly and they ended up with this very dark swarthy as those <laughs> the contemporary description um son who was sort of six foot two odd and no t- one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare. that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com and, and like just a lot more relaxed and fun mm. than his parents. So he was the party king. He well, he, he kind of was the party king, but you wouldn't think from his upbringing that he would have ended up being the party king because you know forced to flee to France to sit out the civil war, kind of wandering around the courts of Europe, kind of begging for crusts. You know, I mean, his uh, let me think about it. So his sister Mary was married to the Elector of um, Holland, the Prince of Orange. Um, so he spent a bit of time there. He spent a bit of time at the French court, um, where obviously because his mother and his younger sister lived there, um, and then got brought back after a decade in exile. At which point he sort of was just quite chilled out about it prob- everything. It was probably quite easy to be the party king after Cromwell, though, because just reopening theatres made you seem incredibly fun. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what people people had sort of voted for the party, and therefore mm. you brought it. I mean, in some ways he was a he was a terrible king because he didn't have any real top interest in kinging, and he kept trying to dissolve. <laughs> Parliament, and the only reason he would call Parliament back again was when he wanted some more cash, basically, because he'd spent it all down the you know, cockfighting arena or whatever. Um, but I just guess that it was the relig- it was the sort of religious tolerance that, mm. and you know, after uh, so many years of so much angst, he was just a bit more chilled out. Um, although obviously his whole business with um, he and James spent the latter years kind of worried about James being a Catholic and inheriting the throne and not really preparing the country for that. There is also the suspicion that he might have secretly done a deal with Louis XIV and converted to Catholicism and not told anyone about it so he could get loads of money from but Louis XIV. In the, at the time, that was probably a sensible thing to do. Yeah, well, I think everyone really appreciated yeah. all the money, so yeah. that was it. And also well, the secrecy, you know. We're, we're fine with secret Catholics, not with public yeah. Catholics. Wasn't England at war with Holland at the time? Yeah, there was a kind so, of constant shifting yeah. thing. But, you know, this is the time of, of peeps and of, um, and of, of really, you know, London and becoming the Newton city that it the was. Society and all of those things. Yeah, yeah. And, and the rebuilding of, of London. Um, John, go on then. Who's your hipster choice for monarch? You're going to uh, say, like, Matilda, yeah? She's, like, really underrated. I could say Edgar the Atheling or something, but no, I won't do that. Um, I don't think you can go pre-conquest. Just put that out This there. is a whole different... We will one day have a conversation about how we should think more about the pre-conquest. Okay. In answer to your question, I'm going to go Edward III. Because I think he's an incredibly important mm-hmm. monarch. I think there is a case that he founds the English state as the English national identity as we now know it. And mm-hmm. it's 
Um, Did he have frankly, two? Frankly, it was about war with France, which it had never been before. This is the most important king, but what is your favourite king? Also, didn't he have too many sons? That was very complicated. For I feel if he'd, if he'd really if he'd been a little bit less frisky, then we could have avoided the Wars of the Roses. It, it did get a bit complicated afterwards. I just think we underrate him because he's quite early and, you know, he's in power for a long time. But, you know, no one really cares about the play about Edward III because it might not be by Shakespeare, so no one knows what he did. Richard III, I think, I'm a pro-Richard Thirdist in the sense yeah, that... Uh, I read The Daughter of Time as a child and it was quite a formative experience. And I think he had the potential actually to be quite a, a good king. I also think that there is a, a strong case for... I'm, I'm going to get dangerously close to saying, hey, sometimes you've just got to kill kids, uh, which, is, which is not great, I know. Um, but but I, think, I think there is a strong case that, you know, not... Having Edward V on the throne at that point was probably not great for the dynasty. I think maybe not murdering them would have been good. Well, well, or did Henry VII do that? Because there is no contemporary chronicle that suggests that um, Richard did it. Tudor conspiracy theories are yeah. right. <laughs> I'm going to make a lot of stirring YouTube videos about like how jet fuel can't melt the of the Tower of London. Um, but I think there is, in the same way that you know, the, a lot of the stuff about Henry VIII's uh, divorce of, of um, Catherine of Aragon actually is kind of politically necessary at the time because you do need an heir to stabilise the kingdom. So in as much as you, know, you, you can feel for it, you can kind of see how they got there. I think there is a, a glimmer of a similar case about how maybe Edward V was not the monarch that England needed in 1483. It's genuinely I extraordinary. Um, killing him and sticking him under a staircase somewhere, but you know. It's genuinely extraordinary how Scotland at that point survived as an independent kingdom um, until the reunification, well, reunification under James I and VI, because um, Mary, Queen of Scots, inherited the throne when I think, I'm going to say, I think, I think she was like either four or nine days old. I mean, she was literally a baby, you know. Um, her mother, Mary of Guise, then becomes um, regent. Big and... fan of Mary of Guise, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Let's yeah. Let's talk about like, let's talk about some strong uh, queen consorts in a minute. But um, and then she then immediately gets packed off to the French court to be uh, betrothed to the Dauphin, Henry the Second, Saint Francois, who eventually then becomes Francois the Second. So at that point, basically, Scotland has a, a, a child ruler who doesn't even live in the country. I mean. Obviously, from the point of view of, of, of England invading, having France as your, your ally in that sense was really helpful. But um, it is kind of extraordinary in terms of stability that Scotland sort of survived that. But they could only do that because of the oil reserves, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were going to make a case for, for Mary of, of Guise? I just think, for the, for the time, she was a very well-travelled and very influential woman. You know, she, she came from Guise's sort of in the kind of northern bit of... Do you know, I've right? never, ever known where Guise was. I, I have this... I don't either, but I have this feeling that it's kind of near Belgium, but in, still in France. Um, but that is a feeling, not a fact. <laughs> because I would like to make a case, although this is now wandering off the topic of British monarchs, that I would like to make a strong case in favour of Catherine de Medici as being an excellent person. Not only did she introduce underpants for women to France, top fact, but also she, again, held the kingdom through really tough times. And her reputation has kind of been blackened because there was a lot of anti-Italian propaganda in France. Like she was very unpopular. Um, but also because of the Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where all the Huguenots got massacred in Paris. But she, again, had three very drivelly sons and had to basically rule the kingdom for all yeah, of them. Yeah, I'm a big fan of sort of... Uh, same goes for Eleanor of Aquitaine, actually. Like, women who kind of 
outlive their children. Or Marie de Medici, who was married to uh, Louis the Thirteenth of France as well, who kind of was had to be regent while Louis the Fourteenth was still very young. Mm. Yeah, there's a, a great. Have you read that book, She Wolves, which is about this, the four the four great women of European history who sort of held it all together. Ah, I'm mm. I'm very pro that. John, they, have, they you favorite, have you got a favorite? Have you got a favorite queen consort? Um, I would probably. I, I you, also have a soft big spot fan of Mary de Medici actually, but okay. that's largely because she's clearly one of the inspirations for the character of Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones. Um, rather, I think you're going to go Mary of Tech just to be she's controversial. A, she's, she's Charlotte also, of Mecklenburg Strelitz. Catherine, <laughs> Catherine de Medici is also the villain in the 1965 Doctor Who story. Yes, that's very true. Yes, that's very true. Sorry, Karen. I know. <laughs> I was just going to make a, a late bid for uh, Electra Sophia of Hanover as. I, you oh, know, she was know, really unlucky. She was really unlucky. She very, very nearly inherited the British throne um, from Anne after the uh, the Act of Succession um, in the early 18th century. Died just months, I think it was seven months or something, too early, and so we ended up with George the First instead, her son. Aren't you a big fan of um, Caroline of Anne's batch as well? I am also. Who was her daughter-in-law? Who then um, did come to or granddaughter-in-law, in fact, yeah. did did. Uh, came over to Britain as the wife of George II and did great stuff like introducing vaccination for children, um, smallpox vaccination, and generally sort of tarted the place up a bit. But to go well, back to Catherine... What about male the... consorts? Well, okay. No one cares. <laughs> Albert was all right, but he I... was obsessed with sanitation and then got killed by drains, which is kind of ironic. Um... I, do, I do actually think Albert is awesome, but I was, I was slightly taken with Mickey with the what about the men? William of Orange was the classic mm. mansplainer. In the sense that he just went, no, I'm going to be king. And you were like, but you're, you should be prince consort. And he was like, yeah, but I'm sort of vaguely related through my mother to you. So I can, I can be joint king, which is a bit kind of like, you know, no one else sort of muscled their way in. And they had to make special extra crowns then. So that when they crowned them, there was this, because she, like Mary should have got the crown. Like she was objectively, she was queen. And actually, when, in which case, I can't even remember the name of the consort of um, Anne, but he clearly, you know, he, he got gonna, very fat I'm as guess German George. princes of They're the time George. did he got very fat he obviously they fathered a lot of children none of him survived but he sort of kept himself to himself I believe he was the sort of proto-prince Philip mm, of, uh, of the Georgian yeah. era or pre-Georgian era hmm. there we are see I've answered your question about, about consorts are you, ha- are you happy now I, John? I am happy I'm this has been an exceptional segment. So <laughs> we do this every week. I'm quite happy to talk about history. We like with yeah. the new statesman. <laughs> yeah, I think Caroline and I do plan to do one where we talk about weird German states of the 18th century. Because the only reason I know of them is because they obviously kept because there were very few Protestant princesses that the British fam- royal family could marry, and they kept finding more, more and more obscure hyphenated bits of Germany. There is an amazing bit about those in um, a book called Germania by Simon Winder. Um, where he, he talks about these sort of German microstates where they don't just number the kings, they number everyone, and also they all have the same name, so everyone is everyone is George or something with a family name. Lots so you get to the end of the century, and you're up to like George the 156th or something, <laughs> and someone says, this is really stupid, so they reset the numbering and start again. <laughs> That's really good, like Lots reusing. of them had, re- also, part of the reason why you get all the hyphenation is because they had a really nonsensical version of primogenitor, mm. where um, rather than the oldest son inheriting the kingdom and becoming the elector or the bishop or whatever title they were using, they, every ta- every generation, they split the kingdom. Um, and so they were all became the Duke of so-and-so, and they all got one-seventh slice of it, um, which is why um, uh, Sophia of Hanover's husband, George, was 
uh, sorry, not George, Ernst, was so exceptional because he somehow managed to persuade all of his other brothers to sign over their bits to him and actually managed to take over all of Hanover. Whereas the current Duke of Hanover, I believe, was uh, cautioned for once urinating against a marquee. I believe, yes, I believe he's a banker. Yeah. Uh, and do you mean the marquee is in a big tent or yes. is it a minor <laughs> yeah, member yeah. of the nobility? It's a duke and an earl. <laughs> this is actually one of my favourite, when I can't sleep, I love reading the Wikipedia pages of the current heirs to these German kingdoms because they're all still around even though they don't have any castles or anything. Um, and most of them, it seems like, work for Swiss for banks. UBS. Yeah. They work for UBS um, and live in London. Um, and, well, yeah. on that note, if you are the heir to a German dukedom and you work for UBS, do please write to us and you can come on the New Statesman podcast, where we will ask you questions about why your family didn't practice primogeniture in the 18th century. But on that note, thank you very much, Caroline and John. Statesman, and I'm here today with our film critic Ryan Gilby, who has reviewed uh, Pasolini by Abel Ferrara. Which is—is is that the first biopic of Pasolini that's ever been done? Um, yeah, I think, as far as I know, it's the first sort of um, fictionalization. There have been various documentaries made, and um, especially surrounding the various theories to do with his death. Um, but yeah, as far as far as I'm aware, this is the first time that um, anyone's actually played Pasolini in a film. What would you What would you say, just as a kind of introduction for anybody who's never seen a single frame of his work? Why should we watch a Pasolini film? Yeah, I, I came I came to his work kind of the, the wrong way round. Really, I used to go to um, our old rep cinema in London in the eighties and nineties called the Scala, and they used to have triple bills of his. Um, he made these kind of late on in his career. He made these kind of bawdy. Um, <laughs> sex comedies that were adaptations of... He did the Canterbury Tales and the Decameron, things like that, and they were very kind of um, lush and, um, as I say, very rude, exactly the sort of thing that, um, that, that me as a 16-year-old was happy to go and see at the cinema. Um, and it's only later that I, that I got into the, um, the earlier work, the, the kind of... Well, the work that really is the key to his reputation, stuff like Akatoni and Mama Roma, which are really beautiful um, depictions of um, well, kind of really life on the streets, kind of street hoodlums and things like that. Um, and he brought to, you know, the essence of Pasolini really is that he brought to people who had these, um, uh, you know, kind of very coarse sort of lives. He gave them a real dignity, like partly through, partly through his use of music in films. He, he was fond of using, he used a lot of bark in um, Akatoni, but also just really the way that he shot the faces. I mean, the camera lingers over these people's faces. Um, you know, just so sort of lovingly. I mean, there is desire there. Pasolini, you know, he was gay and his, his tastes um, really ran to, um, you know, kind of street boys, really, and rent boys. But, um, but there's something more than that. It's something more than just, just sexual. He's giving these characters um, and these people a real dignity. Yeah, you have um, a really nice line in your review where you say um, uh, he manages to locate spiritual salvation in lives that would otherwise be considered unremarkable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely in those first films, especially um, Akatoni which was 1961, and Mama Roma, which was the, a year later. Why did he rub the authorities up the wrong way so much? You said that there were actually rumours that his... Because he met quite a violent end, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Well, he was, um, well, he was vehemently sort of anti-fascist and everything. I mean, he was a, he was a um, politically active Marxist, and, you know, he was always... In one sense, he was... You know, there was a lot about him that was kind of um, traditionalist or would be seen as conservative. For instance, he was anti-abortion... Um, things like that, and he—I um, think I mentioned it in the review briefly about how um, he took the side of the police against the student protesters in uh, 1968. Because 
um, he saw um, he saw the students as kind of daddy's boys and the police were the working class. Um, so, but he was just he was just really um, he was openly gay. That was another another thing that made him kind of provocative. I mean, if you imagine Italy in the in the nineteen fifties, um, especially. I mean, never mind now. You know, and he was he was writing. You know, he was openly gay in his in his essays and his he was writing poetry and novels. Um, he didn't make any attempt to hide that. So yeah, I think I think he was just seen as kind of a troublemaker, really. And, and Abel Ferrara's directed this. The first film I saw by Abel Ferrara is Driller Killer. <laughs> is it a suitable fit? <laughs> well, he's come on a long way since Driller Killer. As much as I like Driller Killer, um, and um, I, th- I think they're really um, yeah. I mean, you can definitely see that they're they're kindred spirits. I mean, Abel Ferrara too. Um, has, has sort of relished being seen as a troublemaker throughout his career, and he's he's dealt again very much in um, in desperate sort of um, lives on the edge, things like Bad Lieutenant, um, and a great revenge film that he made in the eighties called Miss Forty Five. Um, yeah, so I think I think there's definitely a sense that they're that they're kind of soulmates, and Ferrara has said that um, everything he does goes back to Pasolini. That that was sort of the inspiration for him. Ah, so why did they go for Willem Dafoe? Because it's an amazing physical resemblance, isn't it? What what is there yeah. beyond that? Well, um, well, for a start, Ferrara and Dafoe have made. Um, I think this is their fourth film together, so they were already kind of on each other's on each other's radar. Um, and yeah, I don't I don't know really beyond that. I mean. Fi- He's obviously one of the greatest actors working today. He's so sort of, he's very sort of studied and intense, but without this kind of, um, without the kind of show-offy methodness that you sometimes get with, um, you know, I'm Daniel Day-Lewis and I spent seven years up a mountain for this part. With, with Willem Dafoe, it's very kind of, you sense it's very sort of introspective and very insular. Yeah, there's and, nothing particularly self-indulgent about Willem Dafoe, is there? No, no, I don't think so. Even when he's in sort of a, a really nuts film, like, you know, he's been in a few Lars von Trier's, um, films like Antichrist and Nymphomaniac, and he's always kind of, he always seems like a beacon of sanity in those films. Just really saying something, and yeah, I, I think I think in this there's something really um, there's just something almost kind of serene about him the way he just glides through the film, just kind of observing and commenting, and he has a great um, yeah he just has this amazing presence and this this great stillness about him. Because you you mentioned that the films um, it's all shot within it takes place within the last twenty four hours of Pasolini's right. life is that right Does that work as a concept uh, I I found it frustrating actually because um, even though the time frame is compressed it felt almost like it didn't know really what to focus on it it wants to give it feels like half like it's giving audiences who don't know Pasolini um, some sort of essence and impression of what what he might have been like um, and on the other hand it's trying to yeah, I don't know. It's trying to kind of get under his skin away, and it doesn't really that doesn't really work for me. It's got a terrible device that um, that, that is often annoying, where you see someone um, expl- you know giving an interview to a journalist, and and it's through their answers that we're supposed to get to know them. And I just think, you know, show don't tell. I don't want to hear Pasolini kind of, re- you know, I don't want to hear Willem Dafoe reading off um, Pasolini's interview um, answers in front of someone playing a journalist. Yeah, yeah. It'd be much better if they'd found, um, yeah, a more kind of expressionistic way to kind of show show what he's like. Because the film does include um, kind of stagings of scenes from um, his last novel and his last screenplay. So you know, it's got that imaginative side to it. It would have been it would have been nice if the stuff involving Pasolini himself wasn't quite so literal. Do you feel it taught you anything about him that you didn't know? Um, I would. I don't know if it taught me anything about him. I mean, it made some really interesting connections. Um, you've got him in the film kind of expressing his distaste for, 
for consumerism and how that turned us all into machines. But then we've also got shots of him um, kind of cruising the streets of Rome at night in slow motion, kind of peering out of his car window um, at the various um, boys that he desires. So, you know, in, in essence, going shopping. So, I mean, it makes those kind of nice um, sort of implicit connections. But um, as for learning anything about him, I, I, I didn't really feel... Um, no, I didn't really feel that, that was true. So you think probably the best way to get to grips with Pasini is to go straight to the films? Definitely. Was watch Akatoni, which is the film that um, that Bernardo Bertolucci said was like being present at the birth of cinema. Go to Akatoni and, and also Mama Roma. Yeah. And should you go to 120 Days of Sodom as well, which is the one ah. I'm really intrigued about? Oh, my goodness. If you've got a very strong constitution, if you're feeling especially hardy that day, then maybe, I mean, it's two hours of, of torture and violence and sexual violence. And, and it's all got a point about fascism, but it's very, very hard to take. <laughs> maybe that's not the one to start with. Yeah, fun for all the family. Ryan, thanks so much. Um, thank you. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Kate. Cheers. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. (laughs) 